there's no air traffic control in space. Right. Right. There's no right of way in space either. So oh. it's going to be a very interesting situation once we all start to launch. And you'll see this, right? Like in the next few years, it's going to happen. It's not just going to be Starlink. There's going to be a lot of people up there. All right. Welcome to the first Chad Harrington podcast. Today I have with me a good friend of mine, John Holland, who is, I believe, a flight dynamics operations specialist at Telesat. Is that correct? That is correct, Chad. It and, is. Yeah. And you also are a uh, a leading expert in space debris avoidance. I am. I uh, wouldn't claim that term myself, but I do appreciate that particular term from you uh, as as a term of admiration. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> so full disclosure to everybody, John and I go way, way back to elementary school. Yes, to even date ourselves pre-Nintendo days. Oof, yeah, that's true. Mm -hmm. In television. ColecoVision. In television, ColecoVision. Was that not one of them too? Yeah. Um, yeah, side note, um, <laughs> my sister and I, when we were at Dad's Cottage, found the Intellivision. And it still works. No way. Yeah. Still works. <laughs> That's impressive. Wow. All right. Um, next, time, <laughs> next time we meet up, we got to try it. <laughs> we, we shall, indeed. Um, so is a rocket scientist actually a proper term for someone like you? Or is it just a fun <laughs> sort of, a fun sort of uh, thing to say? Yeah, no, I suppose it is the context. If you want to uh, meet somebody at a bar, I suppose the rocket scientist term is somewhat accurate. But but really, that is a broad term. Uh, there's a lot of people in the industry that work on in space that does a number of different things. Um, I just happen to be one of the people that flies the rockets and the spacecraft themselves. So, But from Earth. Oh, well, yes, I suppose we need to make that distinction. That's right. Yeah, you know, my feet are firmly planted on the ground when I do so. I'm not actually up there as an astronaut. It's not, uh, unfortunately. It's not, yeah, I just had a brief moment picturing you in the rockets, just like holding on for dear life. <laughs> <laughs> well, there definitely was a time when that's all I really wanted to do was get into space. But now, but now that we're older and wiser at this point, Chad, I uh, don't mind flying them from the ground instead of being up there. Sometimes I want to still go to space. I feel like if I was old enough and close enough to death, like and the world opened up like Star Wars, I'd be like, yes, I do want to be <laughs> some sort of space smuggler. But uh, yeah, I, I have a feeling that's not as romantic as it looks on Star Wars. Pro well, yeah, who knows, you know, right? Being the swashbuckler or, or Jedi in space would be pretty sweet. But however, but on that, though, there is, uh, um, uh, right, there is kind of space tourism that's coming about. Did you ever right. see the launch from, from, uh, from, from Amazon? Yes, uh, I saw, I saw, oh, God, William Kirk. Blue Origin. Yes, yeah. yes. Captain Kirk. Yeah, William Shatner, William Shatner. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. And it blew his, was actually, his damn mind. <laughs> it did. And that was actually really interesting. Um, there was a follow-up interview with him. So just to give context, right, he was one of the first to go up on this Blue Origin rocket. And, yeah. you know, from a technical term, by the way, they're technically, right, it's a very gray area to say if they actually went into space, right? For right. me, as a flight dynamics operations specialist, truly going into space means that you orbit the Earth. Right? Okay. But but what is space is up for debate. Anyway, regardless, what Blue Origin does, they launch you up to about, I think it's 100 or maybe even 200 kilometers, and then you come back down, basically near where you were launched, right? Oh, so okay. you're not in orbit, but you experience zero G. And anyway, so that's not, that, that it's not that far. 200 kilometers not really no no just to give you some context the space shuttles would go up to around 300 or 400 kilometers and they would then go in orbit which means they have enough a velocity uh, we call it tangentially but along the horizon to keep yourself in perpetual motion around the earth hence orbit and the space station well both space stations i should say there's 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 the International Space Station, but there's also the Chinese Space Station. They're around 400 that. to 450 kilometers. Yeah, I, I know thought, we've we've got neighbors up there. I didn't know that. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah. How come I so, didn't know that? <laughs> well, is it not commonly talked about? Because I thought there was just uh, one station. There was the space station, and that's the only one we should be concerned about. Are yeah, they no, are they attached? We, or are they completely separate? They are completely separate. Okay. Yeah, they are at slightly different altitudes above the Earth. Right. Uh, and they do their own thing, but it is quite impressive. It's only been, I'd say, the last 10 years that they've created and started building the space station. And there's, um, I think they call them Tychonauts in China. So you've got your astronauts, you've got your cosmonauts from Russia. Right. And you have your Tychonauts from China. But uh, yeah. Yeah, no. Um, yeah, yeah. So space is getting busier up there. So and um, yeah. So okay. So you were saying that William Shatner maybe didn't technically go to space, according to you. Um, <laughs> and that well, so hundred kilometers, hundred yeah. kilometers from the space station ish, like mm -hmm. yeah, not quite in a um, suborbital flight. Yeah. And so uh, weird question to do with that. So they go up. Um, do they end up rotating with the Earth as they're going up, or would you even know that? Um, they obviously don't come back down the same place that they went up from. Well, they, well, that's a good question. Um, it, it, they kind of do, to be honest, right? So, like, so, like, as soon as you lift off, like, in a rocket, right, right, you're not touching the ground and you're mm -hmm. just going up, oh. but. Right, exactly. You're going up in the rocket, but you also launched and had momentum from the Earth. So you're kind of still going above when you're launching. You're still above the same sub point that you launched from your right. launch pad, right? It would and the atmosphere is like kind of sitting with the Earth spinning too. So it's likely keeping you sort of in the general. Pretty same. much in this. Yeah, 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 exactly. You'd be roughly the same latitude, longitude as you're heading up type thing. But like you'll notice, though, uh, when rockets do eventually get to a higher altitude, they will start to, to, to turn, some of them, 
not okay. necessarily this this Blue Origin one that William Shatner was on, but they will eventually turn to get that tangential velocity that I was talking about. Because, you know, to truly be in orbit, um, you know, it's not like you go up high enough on Earth and the gravity disappears. Gravity will always be present. You're right, uh, right. To truly be in orbit, what you need to do and experience. Uh, uh, microgravity or zero g so to speak you actually uh, have to have a velocity that follows the horizon of the earth it's called um yeah it's called the tangential velocity and so your rocket needs to turn and and kind of go towards the horizon to give you and your spaceship enough velocity okay. so like you can picture throwing a ball right right and it'll just fall to the ground but if you throw fast enough it'll keep going over the horizon and that's uh that's essentially an orbit okay and so the closer you are to earth the faster that speed needs to be is that correct or is that wrong? that is no that is correct okay yeah the closer yes so that's why like a geostationary satellite is technically not moving where it's like kind of locked mm. in with the earth or is it is it actually moving ever so slightly that we're i don't even know maybe i'm over my head here no, yeah, well, well, no, we jumped up to a few degrees of difficulty here, but yeah, but geo, no, but that's a good point. Geosynchronous satellites are satellites that are 36,000 kilometers away. Oh, my Lord. And the reason, yes, and the reason why they're that far away is uh, um, the orbit speed, the tangential speed that they have up there is roughly three, three kilometers a second. And okay. when you translate that to a rotational velocity, so a rotational rate, it's equal to the rate of the Earth's rotation. So, for instance, uh. if you were on the space station, right, you would rotate about, you, you, over the course of a day, you would orbit the Earth around 14 or 15 times a day. Right, right. and that's You're going that fast. 400 kilometers up. Exactly. And so if it didn't go as fast as that it would start falling out of out of the orbit that's right that's right that's is right. it is it always well okay is it is it always kind of falling out of order do they have to like boost it every so often yes because of the atmosphere at 400 kilometers there's still atmosphere that oh. drags you down a little bit and you got to boost it up um Crazy. yeah because you got to maintain that tangential velocity you got to maintain your orbital velocity yeah. right but yeah, but with geosynchronous satellites that are thirty-six thousand kilometers away, there's no uh, right. There's no atmosphere up there. Okay. Um, so once you're up there, you basically stay up there. It'll jiggle around a little bit because the sun and the moon and solar pressure kind of pushes on it and pulls on it different ways. But for the most part, when you send it up there, it stays there. Interesting. And, yeah, and the reason why a geosynchronous satellite is so uh, important to to current telecommunications. It's like you said, it seems to be in the same spot in the sky. Right. That's because it's so far away. And that's why our satellite dishes on the side of our house doesn't need to move. It stays uh, in that area. So it is yeah. like pretty, pretty within reason staying in place. Like next month, it's still going to be roughly the same spot. It's not pretty much. It's not slowly moving away from this constantly, and then they just have to find another satellite to do this job. Or do you actually use thrusters and things to keep it <laughs> in the place that everybody expects their Bell Express view to come through? 
or whatever well, it is um, that they're using. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, in general, they tend to stay near their same spot, but they will drift. And in order for us to, to provide a high quality of service, we do need to fire our thrusters to keep it in an exact, what we call station keeping box. So, mm-hmm. so, so, uh, right. It's roughly, uh, yeah, a few hundred kilometers in length and, and height, but yeah, we do have to maintain it, but right. in general, yeah, there isn't a lot of forces up there to really move it away. So when you're watching your TV, whether it's Bell or Shaw or, or direct TV or whatever, it's always looking at the same satellite and it, there's no handover. Okay. And so then also here, I looked up a couple things about satellites and oh, things before. All right. So, Bring it on. <laughs> so the, apparently these satellites that you're talking about have something like around a 600 millisecond delay roughly or something. Yes. Some mm-hmm. range, but so it's a little bit slow on the, on the, so that that's why it's good for like TV. Cause we don't care that it took a second or a half a second for the channel to, to fire up. Um, mm-hmm. Not so great for playing video games, but um, how on earth is that? Like, is it a radio signal? Is it a laser? Like, how is it telling? How is it? Yeah. How's it sending signals to satellite dishes? Is it just radio well, signals? It, it is radio signals. It's like electro, like magnetism forces, right? Right. right. So it could be radio. Um, well, that is the primary, uh, right, uh, frequency that's used, okay. essentially, right? And, and just to give you an idea, like all a satellite really is, the ones that we control, we, we broadcast a signal to the satellite, but the right. satellite is like a big mirror that disperses it into a much bigger area and makes sense you know mm-hmm. yeah it's like putting a cell phone tower on top of a hill it's like yeah that's it exactly it gives you a better better range yes and, except and it, with satellites you can see the entire continent right ah mm-hmm. that is important. well sorry you know you know i should say with a geosynchronous satellite you can right. see the entire continent so you can see you're... one whole circle of the earth like that's right the whole that's earth right. is in view or is it the whole Earth that's in view? Is it, or is it only like a portion of the Earth? Well, get this: uh, from a geosynchronous orbit, the Earth is about sixteen degrees in length. So, when you look at your field of view, yeah, I I would probably say if you hold your hand out at arm's length, the width oh. of your hand is probably what the earth would look like from that far away. Oh, wow. So it can see a whole lot more than the earth. Mm-hmm. Yes. So why is that? Why wouldn't it be more focused? Well, uh, well, like, well, yeah, it has to go back to what we were saying. Like in order to have the satellite orbit at the same rate that the earth rotates, it's kind of that magic number of 36,000 kilometers above the earth. Mm-hmm. Right. And, oh, so and we those need, are geo. Yeah. That's a mandate. That's a mandatory thing, but like, why wouldn't, why wouldn't, well, okay. Maybe the sensors do, do, do the sensors actually like, you know, go like, okay, well I can see so much more past the earth, but like, does mm-hmm. it actually like kind of like focus in, on on just the earth or is it blasting it out to all the other solar systems 
Ah, no, you know, we definitely, <laughs> you know, we definitely, uh, we don't want to waste any of the energy and resources to just blast, wow. you know, all around. So, 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 so when a signal is received from the earth, say a television signal, um, uh, when it gets rebroadcast from the antennas on our satellites, uh, it is very focused and there's a very specific footprint because the more you focus it, you know, the more power that you could put in towards that signal for the people on gotcha. the like North American continent and, and, uh, you know, it could cut through weather and things like that. So, so yeah, that makes sense. All right. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I suppose at that height, space debris, isn't a lot of an issue. Oh yeah. Space debris. Yes, at GEO, compared to all the other types of orbits, like LEO, which is low Earth orbit, or MEO, which is middle Earth orbit. Now, just to give you some context, LEO, low Earth orbit objects, that includes the space station at 400 kilometers above the Earth. It goes up to around, I'd say, 100, or sorry, 1,000, or maybe even 2,000 kilometers. And there's a decent amount of stuff in LEO. Oh, MEO... Right is above 2,000 to, to maybe even, say, 30,000, so just below the geosynchronous arc. And that's where GPS satellites are. And we call that kind of a medium Earth orbit satellites. Okay. And then we have our geo, our, our geosynchronous, which, which, which are out at 36,000 kilometers. So at geo, the space debris situation is important, but it's not as... Uh, it, it, it's not as crowded as it is closer to the Earth at LEO. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. So this is all interesting to me. I'm putting it like together. So LEO satellites are still above the space station. Absolutely. Yeah, they're below and above. See, right? Oh, okay. Below as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The space station is surrounded by stuff. Yeah, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, so the space station's floating up there at 400 kilometers, you said, or five? Uh, 400 kilometers, yeah. Right. yeah. Now, yeah. And so the LEO satellites are at 1,000-ish? They range up to 1,000 or 2,000. It's a, you know, it's kind of a ambiguous term that we put onto these different regimes but right for the most part leo satellites those typically be right they're either space stations or they're earth observation or they're the new kind of uh what like uh, spacex is doing with starlink you know they're new types of communication satellites but right yeah but a lot of them are scientific so so they're floating around and they're zipping across the sky those aren't uh those don't look to be stable to us on the Earth. Some of the shooting stars we see at night are actually low Earth orbit satellites going through the atmosphere or being reflected uh, right. sunlight and things like that. I actually had a... So we were on the sailboat in August there, and I was talking to a couple, and they were very excited because they told me they'd seen a bunch of shooting stars, like all in a row. And I was like, yeah, I'm pretty sure that's just a SpaceX launch or something. 
And they're like, no, oh, no, really? I'm pretty sure it was a bunch of shooting stars. They just all went flying across the sky in a line. <laughs> and I'm like, they were thought they saw they thought they'd seen something like some sort of fluke of, you know, universal <laughs> nature. <laughs> and I'm like, no, I'm I can pretty much guarantee that's just like satellites being launched. And they were like, <laughs> oh, they seem so disappointed. <laughs> I'm like, nope, you know, so I'm like, like you know, some divine space being was trying to pass them a message, but like, nope, it's just Elon Musk and and uh, you know, and their uh, and the reflective satellites for a little bit. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. on on that topic, uh, so those aren't even. I looked at at the like the SpaceX or like I don't know if it's SpaceX that's doing this, but there's this website you can go to if you just search. Um, if you. What is it? Starlink? Yeah, if you search a Starlink map, you can find this website and it shows you all of these satellites, these like three mm-hmm. 3,500 satellites or whatever it is floating around out there. And you can click on them and it like tells you what, what height they're at. And you can actually see like those little arrays. You can see like whole lines of them, like because maybe mm-hmm. they just launched them or I don't know. But um, they're all like at 500 kilometers. Or miles, I'm not sure which. Yeah, you know, it's a bit like technical, but it was kind of smart of them to do that because just on the topic of space debris, right? One of the things you do when you design a spacecraft is you have to be aware of just inherent failure, right? When you create a spacecraft, you want redundant systems. So if your GPS fails or one of your thruster fails or some other subsystem fails, you have a backup system. You try and make things redundant because it's expensive to launch things up there and you want to avoid creating debris. Makes so sense. what yeah, so what SpaceX, when they initially uh, launched their prototypes, which were called Tin Tin A and Tin Tin B in twenty eighteen, <laughs> which by the way, that Telesat beat them up to orbit, by the way, with our Leo one proto uh, phase one satellite. Nice. Um but uh, yeah, but uh, SpaceX, they were initially going to go up to a thousand kilometers. Right. And yeah, because up there, uh, they don't have to worry about the atmosphere as much, even though it is present. Uh, so they don't have to do as many maneuvers to keep them in the orbit and trajectories that they want them in. Mm-hmm. Um, but they discovered something. Uh, it, we don't know if one of their spacecraft, one of the Tintin A or Tintin B prototypes from SpaceX failed or not, but from monitoring the orbit, at least what we've seen at, at uh, you know, right, like the space industry, those who uh, follow it, um, they didn't actually move them up to 1,000. They kept them at 500. Oh. And so the whole space industry was just like, hey, what's going on? What's going on? Um, but then they announced, uh, SpaceX announced that they're going to do their whole Starlink uh, constellation of tens of thousands of satellites at 500 kilometers. And it's actually, it's, it's a double-edged situation, right? It's double-edged sword situation. It's a give and a take, pros and cons. But they were kind of smart to do that because when you build a satellite, um, you know, especially when you build them in batches, they're very complicated and those subsystems can fail. And sometimes when you launch them, there's going to be duds. Mm. right there's going to be some lemons some satellites that don't even work yeah and and they won't even have a thruster that works to bring them back down okay so yeah so what spacex decided to do was if we launch them 
up to roughly three or 400 kilometers just below the space station, they can test them out and make sure that they work. And then they can move them up to 500 kilometers where there's still enough atmospheric drag to bring them down. But if they do fail after launch, they've been injected at three or 400 kilometers, not much higher at seven, eight, 900 kilometers. And that, and so they would just come down in a matter of months and burn up in the atmosphere. So it was a way to mitigate space debris, and it was a bit of a smart move. So that the, so you you approve then as a space debris avoidance uh, person, this wasn't a bad wasn't a bad call on their part. Not a bad call on their part. Operating at five hundred kilometers, though, um, yeah, that my opinion is uh, neutral, <laughs> um, right? For customers, it helps because it lowers. Uh, 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 the latency because yeah. they're closer to Earth, but it creates a very busy region around that 500 kilometer area, and that's very close to where we have our space stations. So it's it a lot of help. a lot of variables to fall out of the sky at some point. Exactly, exactly, yeah. And overall, right? It's about providing a good quality of service. Um, you know, being a good steward of the space environment. That's very important. Right. right. Uh, and also protecting, uh, you know, human spaceflight and and that region of space. Oh, on that topic, then, of being good stewards. <laughs> um, it doesn't seem like one would be a good steward to just launch a, uh, a car into space. <laughs> uh, where is that car? Like altitude wise, is that like way? Oh, my up? gosh. Is it is it? A, do you know? Is I they. So, so yes, that's a good point. So SpaceX testing one of their really big rockets. I forget the name of what it is, but like one of the really powerful rockets, which is kind of their template rocket to get to Mars. Yeah, they launched an old Tesla with a, with a dummy astronaut in there. And the trajectory of it was to actually go to Mars. So it's somewhere between Earth and Mars at this point. And oh, okay. It, I was just floating. In fact, it was- yeah, well, I yeah, guess it, I think it was called Falcon Heavy FH001. I just Googled it. That, that, a Falcon Heavy, I believe that is, yeah. Elon yeah, Musk, Tesla Roadstar is an electric sports car that played the dummy payload in 2018 for Falcon Heavy. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, uh, so you said it's somewhere as well out of the orbit of Earth, to your knowledge. Yeah. It, yeah, yeah, yeah. They basically launched it so it's no longer orbiting the Earth. I believe it is now orbiting the sun. It's really far out there. Wow. Yeah. So it would it to... would eventually probably get sucked into the sun and burn. Potentially so. It probably didn't have enough velocity uh right uh to to have a weak all so a fairly safe velocity. a fairly safe party trick then. <laughs> as far as your Pretty life much. is concerned space, yeah 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 right space is big yeah um but you definitely don't want to litter it's like on planet earth right you know who cares if you throw a, a gum wrapper away well it adds up <laughs> you know so be good stewards on the ground and in space <laughs> don't shoot your space rockets into the atmosphere <laughs> um yeah so the i don't want to talk all day about starlink but it is interesting mm-hmm in that mm-hmm. I looked up the stats there's 300 there's apparently around I think 3500 total 
satellites that they've launched. There's mm-hmm. 430 of them that are inactive and 239 of them have burned. Yep. And they're all around 540-ish kilometers up there. So <laughs> seems to me, and oh, this is, if correct me about this too, the fact that they're lower means they need more. Like they need more because they don't have as wide of range to look at the earth as higher up. That's right. That's so right. It seems to me that they would probably be building kind of disposable satellites that they can just keep launching all the time. That's the idea. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. You're right. They just will probably have a huge, uh, right. Construction facility and they're just going to pump out hundreds or thousands of satellites, which from like a business perspective makes sense in that, like the vast satellites they can probably build in five or 10 years from now are going to be way better than these ones. So who cares? Mm -hmm. I guess I can make, it makes sense, but how does that affect? Yeah. Does that obviously must negatively affect the job of space debris? Oh, absolutely. So, so, so just to give you some perspective on that number, right? Right. You mentioned there's about 3,500 yeah. active Starlink satellites up there. Well, yeah. uh, before Starlink came along, there was roughly 2,000 active satellites in Earth's orbit, I'd right. say by 2018. Right. So over the course of the three years that they started launching and operating these, they've essentially doubled the active amount of satellites in space that's crazy yeah just one company so yeah it it's it's somewhat a concern because they've also filed with the fcc and they have plans to have tens of thousands of satellites now whether that's just them playing their cards close to their chest or that's their intention it's going to get a little busy up there and there's other people as well like uh right like right like amazon's blue origin uh uh, like a qp or uh sorry uh Kuiper, I believe, is the name of their constellation that they're going to launch. And the Chinese and the Russians want to launch uh, constellations. And and the company that I work for, Telesat, we're looking at launching a constellation, uh, but much smaller. Um, and, and higher. So, yeah. And higher. That's right. right. Yes. Yeah. 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 We can get into that later. But um, but yeah. Uh, yeah. It it's going to get really crowded up there. And those numbers that you said just kind of show that that's the case because they haven't even come close to finishing the amount of launches that SpaceX wants to, to do for Starlink. There's some mm-hmm. other company called ITU. Is that, oh, have you yeah. heard of that? Well, that is a regulatory body for oh, space. So it's okay. part of the UN. It's the International Telecommunications Union. Oh, okay. And they try and give us rules oh. to say... Oh, maybe that's uh, you know, what it was. I was reading something about the ITU, and it said something about three hundred and thirty thousand satellites. And there's some satellite mm-hmm. company called Kepler, which I thought was rather ironic and strange, um, <laughs> that is 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 interested in this, uh, or is is working on it. But three hundred and thirty thousand LEO satellites sounds like yeah, not a good thing in my head. Well, so yeah, yeah. So that's the thing, right? Space is going to get busy with everything that's happening. So, so we have to come together as an industry in space um, and figure out how best to avoid like one another, 
right? Because right now my job is to keep satellites where they're supposed to be, but also to avoid a debris, right? Right, right. There's rocket body debris uh, from launches. There's satellites that died in orbit, and we have to avoid those. Right. But the but the but one of the big issues is now that we all want to create these constellations, and they're going to be in Leo. The Leo environment's going to get very busy, and there's no air traffic control in space. Right. Right. There's no right of way in space either. So oh. it's going to be a very interesting situation once we all start to launch. And you'll see this, right? Like in the next few years, it's going to happen. It's not just going to be Starlink. There's going to be a lot of people up there, a lot of satellites. And if our spacecraft, say, is approaching, uh, say, a Blue Origin uh, Kuiper spacecraft, you know, who has the right of way? Who's going to go right? Who's going to go left? Who's going to stay where they are? Right. There's going to, yeah. Because that's something that happens in the ocean. Um, we have right of ways, like, because I'm a sailor and um, that's one of the things. There's a lot of complicated right of ways, especially with sailboats, and that I don't even know them all officially, except that I just mostly try to stay out of people's way. But with a sailboat, there's like, if the sailboat is going downwind, and the sail is on a certain side, then that means it has a certain, like depending on which side your sail is, gives you different levels of, of right of way. Because if you're upwind, it almost always gives you the right of way. If you're downwind, mm. it, it, and I'm, God, if there's people that are sailors listening, they, they'll think that I'm not a <laughs> sailor, but we, we don't race, so we don't keep track of this. But ultimately for us, um, and, and there's a starboard for, for non-sailing vessels. It's starboard or, or port, depending on which side you're, you're coming up to. It gives you the right of way or not. But a lot of people don't really follow it. And mostly my, my whole game plan is to go behind any vessel that I'm heading towards just to, to make it easy on everybody. But Oh, well, oh, so I got a question for you about that. Okay, so just say you're in the harbor, yeah. right? And then all of a sudden, you know, for whatever reason, a big tanker is coming your way and you're in your sailboat and you guys are going head on, right? And it's still a kilometer or two or three away, you know, so you got time to react. So how do you avoid a big ship? Well, <laughs> obviously they're, they're he has usually, the right of way. <laughs> yeah. All commercial vessels have the right of way to any, um, uh, what would be the term? Recreational like, vessel. Um, so yeah, you just stay out of their way. Um, this definitely sometimes when you're if you're actually sailing and you don't have any motor abilities, uh, you can find yourself in the path of a giant ship and it will honk at you, and mm. it's probably not going to try to avoid you like a big shipping ship. Um, so it could get pretty dicey pretty quick, but um, yeah, you just yeah. stay out of their way, but. Uh, I always, again, just kind of steer towards back. There's actual shipping lanes um, that, like, in the harbor, like, if you look at the maps, they're, like, highlighted, so you know that that's a high-traffic area. And you shouldn't ever, theoretically, you shouldn't ever go with the shipping lane. You should cross it, um, uh. like, 90 degrees. The fastest way that you can get across the shipping lane is what you should do. Um, but they'll often call out ships like if they see them out there they'll they'll call on the radio or the halifax traffic um which is like an air traffic control but for the ocean will 
you hear them calling out for boats all the time, like unnamed sailing vessel, unnamed sailing vessel. And nobody li- nobody's listening to the radios. So because they're just like some small uh. sailboat and they don't have VHF or care. And um, so they, they call out because they have to. But 90 percent of the time, nobody answers. But um, yeah, just always stay out of the way of large ships. Um, I know that oh, like okay. if you're out in the ocean and you see one like on your radar or your AIS and you see that it's on a trajectory that you're going to be on a collision course. I mean, 90% of the time you just change your, your heading four degrees and you know, it's you're there about two or three kilometers out. So by the, they, they go past, you go behind or you can like, if you're like in a real pinch and it is the open ocean, you can call them and say like, we don't have control. So if you would like to try to steer around us, that would be, that would be great. And they'll often, mm. you know, change their heading three or four degrees and, and end up not, not running you over. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, there could be. Yeah. Yeah. So for my field of work in avoiding space debris and other like operator satellites that there could be some lessons learned there. Um, because, uh, you know, right, right, right. Like trying to avoid something that's coming at you at a relative velocity of 14 kilometers a second, which is something like 36,000 kilometers an hour. That's very fast. You know, you're going to have, you're going to have to have quick reaction time, <laughs> but I guess you can see these things coming. No. Well, okay. Well, so that's the thing. I like the movie gravity just tangent here, but a little bone to pick. Yeah. If, Right, 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 right. When you do watch the movie Gravity and then all of a sudden you see the space debris coming at them and they yes. can like, yeah, no. You wouldn't no see way. it. You wouldn't see it. It's much faster than a speeding bullet, right? Like right. at, yeah, right. You're talking seven kilometers a second. And if you're approaching head on, then two, two pieces of debris or satellites head on at seven kilometers a second is 14 kilometers a second. So that's like, let me figure this out really quick here. This episode is sponsored by Chad Harrington Tattoo. Yeah, that's right. I'm sponsoring my own episode. If you're looking for a tattoo that fits and flows with your body, is in black and gray, and has a nature or floral theme to it, well, then I think you should go check out my Instagram. My username is Chad Harrington Tattoo. And if you like what you see there, you should follow me. Or if you're sold on my design style right away and you want a tattoo, you can email me about a booking. For more information, go visit my website, chadharringtontattoo.com now back to our conversation that might be close to a relative velocity of 50,000 kilometers an hour good lord yep yeah you, you know and that actually sounds about right yeah that's actually. that's definitely not comprehensible to the eyeball <laughs> no no so um yeah so so Yes, what we actually have, right, right, like not one operator, like, uh, right, like whether like Telsat, who I work for, or any operator, has the ability to track all these objects in space. Right. Um, we actually rely on the space force, the U.S. Space Force. They have uh, a, a a space sensor network, they call it, that monitors, and they provide a free service to all satellite and spacecraft operators. And they say, hey, by the way, in a few days, this particular spacecraft is going to come near your spacecraft. They don't tell you what to do. They just give you some data so that you can do like an analysis. Heads up. Yeah. 
like a risk analysis essentially and right. it comes down to just probability right right so there's nothing set in place that says you know if a, a spacecraft is coming at you and there's nothing that says you should go up or down or, or like you're basically playing like a strange game of chicken with the other other satellite mm -hmm. and they you hopefully you both choose properly in the end hopefully but what will probably come about is we will probably create some right of ways you know similar to when you know right yeah right with like naval navigation or with like air navigation uh, right 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 certain right of ways came about and this is kind of the apex where the space industry needs to have these right of ways uh, at the industry like we're currently talking about it but nobody can truly agree yet on right. hey if chad's satellite is approaching john's satellite who goes up who goes down who even moves right because that's the other thing too your propellant is a precious commodity right and you don't want to just fire thrusters you can't just always do that all the time right because you want to conserve your propellant so and is that is that finite or is it is it recharge with the sun or something? oh it's definitely uh no it is finite okay yeah yeah you, well, you're all thrusters there's varying types of thrusters there's monopropellant bipropellant that all use you know right like combustion or, or decomposition to fire but there's also interesting ones called like ion uh, thrusters they come in various names but they essentially uh, right right like essentially like uh, right like atom by atom they strip away some electrons and then they push out that particular like atom oh. or, or like molecule but it's super efficient so so like you know you might get a hundred years of fuel usage with those but they're but they're slower to respond but they're just right. much more efficient yeah that sounds nice so um yeah, but no matter what thruster you use, you have a limited quantity of fuel. And that fuel is going to keep you going where you need to go for your customers right. or your mission. It's also going to need to be used to avoid things. And depending on where you are, it's also going to be used at the end of life to dispose of the satellite, whether it's back into the atmosphere or... Uh case of geosynchronous satellites you got to push them farther away so in a controlled fashion instead of letting it just burn out and find its way back to earth on its own because that would be uh, a risk that would take too long yeah and and, and lingers and, up there and you wouldn't know what it might run into because you don't have control anymore that's right yeah yeah so is there even that in place is there a rule in place that says if your satellite's almost dead you have to use the remaining fuel to do something with it? Or is that just left up to the good ethics of whoever's running the satellite? Well, yeah. So yeah, yeah, there's certain right, decommissioning standards that are in place and you have to, they call it passivating a satellite. So if your satellite is still controllable and it's at the end of its lifetime, whether you know the mission is done, and you're disposing of it or whether it's aging and it's just time to get rid of it you you need to move it to the appropriate area depending on what orbit you're in but you also need to passivate it so um, there's two things that can generally explode on a satellite one is the fuel system right because it's pressurized and so what you want to do is you want to depressurize that system so once you use up all the fuel that's on board or the propellant you also need to get rid of the pressure that was built up. So right. if it does breach, it won't create an explosion. It'll just 
kind of break a hole like, in your satellite. But the other thing you need to do is you need to uh, passivate your batteries. So certain types of batteries used, they're under pressure too. And if they're okay. struck by space debris, they can create create like an explosion. And that's what you really want to avoid, right? Well, you want to avoid debris regardless up in space. Right. Because it creates a problem. But you really want to avoid uh, fragmentation of your debris because... <laughs> yeah, yeah. Frag, frag grenades in space. It's, it's not a good plan. Yeah, basically, you don't want that. Because here's the thing, right? It doesn't matter how big that object is coming at you. Like, okay, so Chad's controlling your satellite and an object's coming at you at the speeds we're talking about, like, right, right 14 kilometers a second yeah. type thing. No matter what, a little bolt that came off a rocket or even a fleck of paint can cause a huge amount of damage. It's called hypervelocity collisions. Wow. And there's so much energy behind that, right, up in space at those speeds that it actually produces little bits of light with the collisions. It's that powerful. That sounds crazy. Yeah. yeah, so, yeah, so, yeah. So really, you just want to avoid debris. But as a good steward of the space environment, you also want to uh, minimize the debris that you leave behind. You want to minimize your footprint. So, so yeah. So that means you got to deorbit your satellite. You have to passivate it. Um, you, you you also have to do what SpaceX did, right? Right. You you mentioned they've got a few hundred uh, non-functioning satellites, um, but they launched it at the right orbit. That the atmosphere will bring it back down in a matter of months instead of staying up there for decades or centuries. So, and so, oh, and then that always you know. Sounds problematic to the average person, I would think, that satellites falling out of the sky, it doesn't sound great. Um, <laughs> you know, I, you, you assume as a regular person that, you know, maybe the, the atmosphere just burns them up before they hit the ground. But I feel like that's not the case. Yeah, you got to be careful. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So when you design LEO satellites, their end of life procedure is to actually burn up in the atmosphere. Oh, right? okay. So the components that is the plan. That's the plan. Yeah. Yeah. Right. There's some older satellites that are lingering up there and all that. But the plan is, especially with these new constellations coming within five years, they need to have finished their controlled lifetime and then enter the atmosphere. And at the end of five years, at the latest, they need to just burn up. But, wow. but the components that make up satellites and spacecraft are pretty hardy because space right. is a right. Right. So you have. Uh, like propellant tanks that are uh, made out of like you know titanium or or uh, or like mixtures with it, so so they can be pretty hardy. So so we actually, when we design spacecraft, we actually have to determine if there is risk to human life on the ground when we decommission it and fly through the atmosphere to burn up. Right. So yeah, so you yeah, so you make a model to say, oh well. This component's made out of this type of material, like aluminum. This component's made out of this type of hybrid polymer material, and so on and so forth. And then you 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 do a study to see when you enter the atmosphere, what's the chance that some of it will get to the Earth's surface, and if it would hit somebody. <laughs> right. Well, that seems important. Yep. yep. And so, how big are these satellites that we're talking about? Like these Leo satellites. Are well, they like uh, I, I would picture them like the size of a big basketball, like bigger than normal, <laughs> but like not. Well, no, that's not that's not big enough. Like a, I don't know, the size of a desk. Let's say that. Does that sound good? 
both both are both are correct chad well done you get two gold stars <laughs> for that yeah um there are many satellites the size of basketballs called cubesats and like universities and and, and like different uh, like institutions will make those but then the size of a desk or like even geosynchronous satellites can get to be the size of a tractor trailer that makes sense. They're huge. Yeah. 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 But the ones that are uh, that are going to make these new constellations from from SpaceX and Telesat and, and like Amazon and such, they're going to be, I'd say, about the size of a car. Oh, that's much bigger than I would have thought for yeah. such a large yeah. and plentiful system. Yeah. Some are the size of fridges and beer fridges as well. But uh, right, it really depends how you design it. Um, Interesting. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so I'm still trying to think about space debris. Uh, mm. Is there something that you guys are working on that is like, so the, the U.S. Army or space, what is it? Space, space Force? Force? Space Force, space right? Space Force. Yeah. yeah. Like, <laughs> I watched the series. It wasn't that good. <laughs> um, the... Uh, <laughs> yeah yeah well you know well you know it did leave a little bit to be desired and like uh yeah and i wouldn't say it was very scientifically accurate but somewhat entertaining it was it, not, a it was cast. a little entertaining it's promising yeah, yeah it's promising i didn't even know but it was yeah. a real thing until that show to be honest but um oh. so they're there at the, what how are they scanning is it radar that they're detecting all these space crafts that you're talking about yeah, yeah. So yes. Well, yeah. So for your listeners, if they want to look it up, it's called the SSN, the Space Surveillance Network that the okay. Space Force uses. And what it is, it's kind of interesting. A bit of a history lesson here. It's decommissioned Cold War era sensors, wow. and they compose of mostly radar, but it also is lasers and like optical telescopes as well can be used to track certain satellites. And so they track. They're currently tracking around thirty thousand pieces of debris. Um, and they can only track things that are about 10 centimeters in diameter or bigger. So okay. roughly the size of maybe a softball to a volleyball is the smallest they can track. That's pretty but, big, really. Yeah, yeah. So they use this system and then they crunch all the numbers and like four times a day, they'll spit out all these what we call conjunction data messages that that tell you, hey, Chad, your satellite is coming close to John's satellite. Here's the data, but you two have to figure out what to do. Right. Um, yeah, but 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 yeah, so like if it wasn't for them, you'd be a very, uh, you know, you'd be flying blind in space. So we definitely uh, thank the Space Force, and, and particularly they're called the 18th Space Defense Squadron. They're huh. in Vandenberg Air Force Base. And, you know, I was actually there on site and, and it's, it's very cool. Their control center, they've got all these big screens and, and they're tracking things in space. And, uh, yeah, that's cool. Yeah, do they was... use geosynchronous satellites to, uh, to do that or what kind of side, or are they doing it from, from earth? Well, yeah, what, what, yeah, they do track the space surveillance network is mainly terrestrial based. So really? it's radars and, and lasers on the ground. However, a shout out to the Canadian Space Agency. Uh, there are, um, uh, there is, I believe, one satellite or two called Sapphire, or maybe even NeoSat. But 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 there's a satellite called Sapphire that that tracks space debris in space, and it can provide some pretty accurate um, uh, data uh, to provide to us operators as well. But it all flows through 
that 18 or the 18 space defense squadron that's part of the space force Mm-hmm. Well, I've got a great idea for you guys. Um, <laughs> start a new protocol and standard if you could get any in, in place. Oh. And uh, everybody who's like low, like, because um, I assume you don't want to like blast the earth with radars and, and lasers because uh, humans are down there. So I assume it's safer to point it up. But so the lower mm-hmm. flying uh, ra- like arrays, they should all have little... Um, little radars on them and they should all be pointing up and looking for stuff and then sending it all back down i feel like they had the bandwidth to like calculate this sort of thing (laughs) oh yeah so sort of like a communal help so to speak for for right 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 like whoever has the possibility they can help out yeah exactly yeah 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 that would be nice that would like um... every boat has a radar basically and an ais system Mm -hmm. so well not every boat but most boats that are worth talking about. So why not have all the satellites have their own little systems and then they can be like, hey, I just saw something fly by and uh, it looks problematic to me. And then <laughs> the other ra- the other yeah. satellites can be like, well, thanks for that heads up. <laughs> exactly. We would take all the help that we can get because um, uh, because one thing I did want to mention, right? R- right. So we currently have no right of way in space, um, but... Uh, we are looking, the industry keeps throwing around this term an STM, a space traffic and management entity. Okay. Right? So, so, uh, so this entity <laughs> might, de- might determine the best, um, uh, right, like right of way, or it might just be a data repository where we can, all operators can share their information. But that's really what, what the industry is going towards right now from a flight dynamics and, and like a space safety situation is right. Right. We all need to work together. So, so, so we're looking to create this, uh, uh, space traffic management system and who knows if it's going to happen. Um, because it is a big endeavor, you know, right. uh, there were probably bumps in the road when air traffic control for aircraft were, was created and I would imagine well, probably, yeah, but um, but yeah, but that's the big thing right now is we're trying to make sure that everybody's on board, regardless of the nationality that right that you're in, which right, does pose a problem too. It's in everybody's best interest and economic interest to have something in place. Exactly, and and yeah, right. Like space, you know, right. Like back in the fifties and sixties, I think there was a treaty said that you wouldn't weaponize space, and that war wouldn't spread into quote unquote space, whatever right. threshold that is. Back to our like original conversation about William Shatner, did he actually go to space or not? But the point is, is um, it is becoming weaponized, hmm. uh, right? Right. The Russians actually deliberately blew up one of their satellites about a year ago, and it was a satellite that was deliberate. Well, I shouldn't say deliberate, but it was a satellite that was near the International Space Station. And so there's hundreds of pieces of debris now that are threatening astronauts and cosmonauts on the International Space Station. And it was a deliberate weapon test performed by the Russians. And so where did this weapon, did they shoot it from space or did they shoot it from Earth to space? They, sh- they shot it from from Earth in in the Russian territory, and it was a missile that went up and wow. blew up. Yeah, it was not something that not, we were not happy well received. About. Yeah, that's crazy, mm-hmm. and not sounding anything unlike what Russia would be up to. 
<laughs> so were were there were there people on the space station when they did this? Yep. Were there Russians 100%. on the spaceship when they did it? I there there usually is a cosmonaut on there. I don't know for a hundred percent, but it wouldn't surprise me if there was a cosmonaut or two up there. And so that. The, if they blew something up with a missile, uh then there's lots of little pieces that you can't track. That's right. And they would there's... have gone different directions. Mm-hmm. And so you don't actually have any idea where those are. And you'd, no. hope, you'd hope that they all went down and burnt up in the atmosphere, but you wouldn't know. Well, that's right. The Space Force will use their 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 space surveillance network to track what they can. But like I said earlier, they can only track things about the size of a volleyball or a softball. Yeah. So there's other pieces that are still out there that are traveling at those hypervelocity speeds. And they will certainly penetrate and cause damage to a- any space station up there, whether it's the International Space Station or the Chinese Space Station. Or any satellite that they, that they happen to come exactly. across as well. Yeah, yeah. You know, it was not well received, right? And, uh, and now uh, China also did that in 2007. With, uh, there is a weather satellite of theirs that was much higher up, and they deliberately did a, it's called an anti-satellite uh, uh, test. So, and, and uh, they blew it up. And that was really poorly done because it was so high up that debris to this day we're still avoiding, and it's going to cause a concern for decades, if not centuries, to come. Is it a cloud or is it just everywhere? It, 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 uh, yeah, that's a really good question. It does disperse. So like at first when you create the explosion, right, right. When you create all the debris, it will be clumped together in a cloud, but they're all various properties and, and like whether it's solar pressure or gravity or the earth's atmosphere will basically disperse them. And it just, it just gets spread out everywhere. So it's everybody's problem. So is that a spot, like if you were sending uh, astronauts up or something, or like if you're heading to Mars, like Elon's like, let's go to Mars. Do you have to avoid this sort of general, this is like a, there's like a Bermuda Triangle of shit up there. <laughs> everybody goes, we kind of avoid this spot. Like, uh, yeah, is, it, is it being tracked at all or marked? Like, Or is it just like, you know, it's there, but we don't know where it is. Yeah, no, yeah, no, it is being tracked. Well, what can be tracked is tracked by the Space Force. It's part of that, right? Right. right. The debris from that is part of that 30,000 uh, like objects that are being tracked. Right. Um, but again, we don't know like everything up there. And, and yeah, when we do launch uh, spacecraft, whether it's astronauts on, uh, yeah, like manned space flight or whether it's probes or like spacecraft to other planets or whatever, we do have to try and avoid the debris. So of those 30,000 objects, we have to talk to the Space Force and crunch our own numbers to make sure that where we launch and the trajectory that our rocket is going to go doesn't hit any of those things. So as we keep getting more things in space that will eventually create more debris, Mm. it's going to be a bigger and bigger issue. And you and maybe your listeners have probably heard of this thing called the Kessler syndrome, which is essentially a critical point, a nexus of where it's theorized that if there's so much debris up there, that it just becomes a uh, kind of a chain reaction and, and nothing will be able to stay up there. 
and we're not there yet. But so someday we could trap ourselves on, like if we were a spacefaring beings, we somebody blows up a satellite, and then it blows up, and all that shit flies around and hits a couple other satellites, blowing them up, and then they mm-hmm. have a bunch of shit flying around, and it continues to just blow. I'm trying to think of what that looks like. Just like a bunch well, of fireworks, I guess. But it's a fireworks, but it's also a nuclear explosion. That's the basis of it, right? You get right. a bunch of neutrons to go into uranium or unstable uranium, and then it splits that uranium atom that creates more and more neutrons. That splits the next one and the next one, and it's just a chain reaction. Yeah. And so then we wouldn't be able to safely, unless we have some sort of armor, high tech armored a, shuttle. Yeah. We won't be able to leave the planet because we're trapped by high what was what's the high velocity named again that stuff that just shatters things what'd you call that oh uh well it'd be high velocity impacts or yeah just, yeah yeah the thing yeah. that you said paint makes light like little thing like even a, a nut can make create light when it hits oh something. yeah 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 you know a high velocity impact yeah so mm-hmm. yeah you wouldn't be able to escape because these things yeah. flying at 50,000 kilometers an hour or whatever are, are going to hit you. Mm-hmm. And, and one would hope that, yeah, one would hope that if we do get to that situation, we have enough technology shields. and knowledge that we could create shields we or something shield along technology. those lines. Yeah, yeah, that's the thing we're waiting yeah. for. Yeah. That's one yeah. of the Star Trek things we're waiting for, shields. <laughs> shields and warp drives so we can just scoot right by it without having to worry about it. It is interesting yeah. to me that there's things called ion thrusters, and that's a real thing. Hey, we've been uh, for my whole career. I've been I've been using them, and they're really cool. Um, but uh, just say hypothetically, we create Tie Fighters and and like and like X Wings. They're not going to really use the current ion thrusters we have because they're so sluggish low sluggish they're very efficient but they're very sluggish yeah. well that was the same as diesel engines back in the day so there's room for improvement i'm sure oh really yeah really? there's like an evolution of diesel engines from like a 0.1 horsepower to like whatever yeah well for those who are listening i was a mechanic in my previous life or still i consider myself a mechanic i guess <laughs> but um and worked mostly on volkswagens so diesel motors in the 70s like uh volkswagen was one of the only people who could like really actually make a reliable one so i think ford had like used the volkswagen four-cylinder motor in some of their vehicles and like mercedes has an okay diesel motor but like there was like ford's actual like diesels kind of sucked at the time because they have to build them really beefy and strong because they have such high compression um but it used to be that they were very very slow like uh then they put turbos in them and then they were like so like an old four-cylinder diesel i think was like 60 horsepower or something and like the equivalent gas motor was like closer to 80 horsepower and then they put turbos on them and so then you have forced air and then that brought your it mostly brought your torque up more than your horsepower but it made the the diesel seem less of a compromise to drive it because it's more efficient and then they came in with um, direct injection, which um, basically there's like a, 
it's before in the old diesels there was like a pre-ignition like spot where the fuel would come in and get heated before it would go into the actual piston area or the uh, compression hmm. area and then now they have direct injection so there's actually that that pre-ignition chamber is like built into the piston it's like a hole in the piston so that like your 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 glow plug can fit in and um and then that just kept getting more advanced the uh, fuel pumps have gotten so much more advanced that they can atomize the fuel better and like diesels now hardly even notice that they're diesels like they don't rattle and bang as much they have good power they 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 get still excellent fuel mileage um and i recently learned i didn't know but apparently helicopters use diesel really yeah i thought that they'd used avgas but um my friend lee mentioned to me that they don't use guy he, he corrected me later because i was like oh but they use the same fuel that tankers use huh like out oh, in the ocean because he was talking about some rescue thing that happened and he said they sent out a helicopter and then they needed to go back for fuel but they found a tanker out there and they landed on the tanker and refueled and I thought to myself, well, that's convenient that the tanker had ab gas. <laughs> and uh, he didn't say anything at the time. But later he was like, oh, by the way, they don't use ab gas. They use diesel, like essentially. And I was like, really? What? I had no idea that helicopters use diesel. Well, helicopters, but I'm curious. What about like NASCARs and like F1 cars? What do they use? Do they use like unleaded gas or whatever you call it? Or do they use uh, diesel? No, they don't. Well, there are, I think there is a class that might use diesel. Like I think the Le Mans series, like, which is an endurance race. Um, I think uh, some of those like Mercedes might have a diesel engine. Cause then you don't have to stop for gas. Um, you don't have to fill up as often. Um, but I'm not sure. I'm not a guy that's heavily into racing, but, but most of the engines are, are certainly gasoline, probably um, maybe even have gas, which usually aviation gas is just a very high test version of like we have like in canada we have like 92 octane in the states they have like 104 or something i forget but it's higher than our higher than our lowest and or higher than our highest and i think avgas is just a little bit higher i think might be like 120 octane or something but i don't know i'm just making stuff up i just have loose loose concepts of, (laughs) of those things but I do know that when I ran um, the States gas, when I had like high tests, like 100 octane uh, plus, I noticed in my old supercharged Golf that it did, in fact, noticeably sound smoother and work a little better. It was surprising. Really? Yeah. So, y- y- yeah, so how does a higher octane help your engine? Because I know like with a regular car, right? Uh, you know, right? They're uh, what is it? Is it eighty six or eighty seven rating? I don't even know what it is. I think so. Um, I think that's the lower end of the spectrum. You can get up to ninety two. I think that's high test here. Mid grade is like something in between, and I think you're right. I think low low grade is eighty something. So then, why do yeah? So yeah. So I've always been curious. Why do cars like some high performance cars want the higher octane? while some can get by without like is it just uh the efficiency that the like engine is expecting um it's that the higher octanes burn slower and more consistently so it gives a more consistent push on the piston so 
if you think of like the cheap gas just going like pop it gives it a push on the piston for whatever a very brief mm -hmm. time every time pop 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 it barely pushes it um but the mid-grade burns a little longer and there's like there's more like i bet you kelly would know more about it there's like <laughs> propagation fields and things but like the mid-grade just or the higher even the higher grade it just burns longer so instead of going pop it goes pop and so like you've got more milliseconds of push on each piston so it's like it's oh. a more consistent push um and on like engines that are built for it if you run the lower grade stuff it creates what is called ignition knock and it starts kind of rattling you can hear your engine rattling it almost sounds like someone's shaking a little can of um Oof. like like spray paint or something tic tacs or something like it just sounds like this oh. weird little rattle like someone's shaking something and it's not good for the motor it's um and so there's 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 actually knock sensors built into cars to sense that sound and then pull the timing back which will reduce your overall performance but it stops it from pre-igniting which is kind of what ends up happening i th i think but um yeah the uh the higher test equals a longer slower burn which gives a more consistent longer push on the piston it'd be like if you're push if you're pedaling your bicycle and you only pedaled like halfway versus <laughs> you pushed all the way to the bottom like you could get away with just pushing halfway but you're not going to get like as good power but engines have to be calibrated for those things and if you run too high a grade um, it won't do anything if the engine isn't like looking for it. But if you have an engine that wants high grade and you put low grade in, it's it's not very happy at all, and it could be detrimental to yeah. the uh, the engine. But yeah, that's that's my my loose explanation of uh, <laughs> of octanes. Good to know because we're in the process of considering purchasing a new car. So, so we'll see. Mm -hmm. That's fun. Yeah. Yeah, no, the ones, of course, we want, want the higher octane gas, <laughs> but, uh, but you it's know, okay. economically speaking, yeah. if they want the high octane, it, as long as it's not, if it's not a performance reason, like it's for like extra fast, it can be, it can burn out in the wash, like whatever that means. Like you can, <laughs> the extra cost could get you the extra mileage as long as you're not like pushing your get foot to the gas, like. If you're driving conservatively it might get you more mileage having the higher octane so it might not matter ultimately except that if you went to a if we went into an apocalypse or something and you need to run dirty fuel then you'd kind of be fucked but... oh okay so i won't be able to take my new wrx <laughs> to the apocalypse. through the zombie apocalypse or something i'll have to rely on uh yeah my old jeep yeah, that, yeah. Your Jeep would probably run the um the homebrew gasoline a little better. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm trying to think. I think we covered Kepler effect or Kessler. Is it Kessler or Kepler? The Kessler syndrome. Yeah. Oh, okay. I thought it was Kepler yeah. effect. What's that? That's something different. Is there a Kepler, Kepler effect? Well, well or am Kepler I just pronouncing is... it wrong? Well, there, you know what? There's a lot of K people in the space industry. We've wow. got Kuiper, which yeah. is 
um, what, uh, what the Amazon constellation is going to be called, but that's basically the Kuiper belt, which is beyond Pluto where like, there's a bunch of comets and like small minor, uh, right? Like orbital bodies. But then you also have the Kessler syndrome that we talked about where it's the critical point of littering our space environment. But Kepler is pretty big in my area as well. He's the guy that <clears throat> he's one of the first, I would say that like, astrophysicists or astrodynamicists. Uh, so, so, so when we describe orbits, we use uh, Kepler like elements, uh, you know, so semi-major axis inclination. So, yeah, a lot of K's, I'd say, in the whole space industry. But, uh, but yeah, yeah, super. So you're pretty close. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think that might be a good place to wrap up. Oh, excellent. Well. Chad, I very much have to express my appreciation of being your first guest on this podcast. Thank you. I appreciate you uh, you being my first guest. Um, and uh, yeah, for those listening, I hope you enjoyed it and uh, I hope you'll tune in again. <laughs>